I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of the Gaza War and Israel-Palestine, this time with special guest Ambassador Karim Hagag, of the Cairo Review of Global Affairs. If you're not familiar with Ambassador Hagag, he served for 25 years in Egypt's diplomatic corps and has a great deal of commentary to offer on the Israel-Palestine conflict issue, uh, whatever you may want to call it. The focus of this conversation will be how the Gaza War transforms the Israel-Palestine conflict and how the past decades have eroded the two-state paradigm when it comes to Israel-Palestine. All that and more on this edition of the program. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Ambassador Karim Hagag. Welcome to Parallax Use Guest that was recommended to me recently. I'm very glad he could join me. Uh, it's over the holidays, so really appreciate him coming on. Uh, Kareem Hagag is co-managing editor of the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, and he's had a lengthy career in Egypt's uh, diplomatic services. Uh, he's actually served over 25 years Um has experience in Egypt's diplomatic service. And we're going to be talking about uh, Gaza. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you, JG. Thank you for having me. I guess where I wanted to start 
is maybe you could talk a little bit about your background in diplomatic work and the perspective that gives you on what we currently see happening uh, with Israel's war in Gaza and just uh, your perspective on maybe the Israel-Palestine issue more generally as someone who has uh, been a lifelong diplomat. Sure. So like you said, I, I served uh, for over 25 years as an Egyptian diplomat. And uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and in particular the Palestinian issue, has been a big part of my professional preoccupation. I've worked on uh, much of the diplomacy surrounding this conflict. Uh, I have tried to be a student of this conflict, uh, seeing how the conflict has changed, how perspectives on addressing the conflict have also changed. Um, Part of that background has been really uh, very much involved with U.S. diplomacy towards the conflict. I served for most of my professional career in Washington, D.C., focusing on uh, this issue, among others. Uh, so so th this is a topic I am very attached to uh, personally, intellectually, and professionally. And what's your perspective on, I guess how things have panned out from October 7th to now, uh, the bombing of Gaza. And also, do you think it's it's fair to say that I feel like some people are forgetting that there's a, a bigger context to what's happening right now. It's It doesn't just start on October 7th. That, that, that doesn't mean uh, that's not a justification in any way uh, for what happened on October 7th. Uh, but I, I feel like we need to understand the broader history, uh, the deeper history of what's been happening uh, with Gaza for the years leading up to this? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question, because I, I'll, I'll talk about Gaza in a minute. But uh, to, to your broader point about uh, sort of the, the broader context uh, to this, I mean, what, what, what this war uh, has really brought home uh, to, to people like me, I think, is the extent to which the conflict has been transformed, right? I mean, what, what we're really seeing uh, in, in this particular conflict is a reflection of how the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the parameters of the conflict, the dynamics of the conflict have really shifted over the course of the last three or four uh, decades. I mean, what we're really seeing is I think that the breakdown of the idea that uh, this conflict can be resolved in the context of two states, right? So partitioning uh, the area between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, between two independent nationalist states, so, so Israel and Palestine. And we've seen the erosion of the, the, the building blocks of, of that paradigm. We, we've seen the territorial, uh, the erosion of the territorial basis of that idea, right? So there's, there's just not enough land now in the West Bank and Gaza to establish a Palestinian state. That has much to do, of course, with Israel's relentless settlement policy uh, over the course of the last uh, 30 years. 
we've seen the erosion of the political basis of uh, that idea of partition. Uh, we've seen it on the Israeli side with, with the with the gradual shift towards ever more extreme versions of uh, the political right. We've seen it on the Palestinian side with the with the division within the Palestinian national movement between uh, Fatah and Hamas, and, and that reflects the territorial division between Gaza and the West Bank. And we, we've seen we've seen how the conflict has changed in in the pattern of violence, right, between both sides. I mean, we, we've seen it uh, reflected more in 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 the emergence of. Uh, the, this uh, ethnic-based violence, right? It, it's it's no longer just Israelis and Palestinians. It's Arabs and Jews, and and you see that increasingly, not only in the West Bank and and of course now in Gaza. You also see it in in Israel proper, right? We, we've seen that in the last round of conflict in 2021 in the mixed Arab-Jewish cities. So, so this is a conflict that's that's changing dramatically. I think what we're seeing now in, in the war on Gaza is a manifestation of this breakdown. So we're seeing the conflict produce ever more extreme forms of violence. Right? We, this is what we've seen on the attack on October 7th. I mean, the first time since the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948, that, that we actually see uh, a, a, an attack by an Arab force, right, in this case Hamas, on Israel within the 1948 borders, right? So within the settlement communities in the Gaza envelope. I mean, this was a landmark uh, development. And of course, since then, we, we've seen uh, the, the extreme a form of violence. Uh, I mean, just the relentless military onslaught uh, inflicted by Israel on Gaza and and the people of Gaza, and this is, this is extreme violence that's already sort of breaking records in terms of the destructive impact of modern warfare. I mean, we haven't seen the, this type of intense warfare uh, in, in decades. And, and so it, it's, I think, an important landmark uh, in how the conflict has changed and how the dynamics of the conflict uh, have shifted. And it, it's taking what I think is a very ominous turn I mean, in, in terms of the prospect of, you know, how you can put back together any sort of paradigm whereby this conflict can be settled on the basis of the old idea of, of partition of, of two states. So th there's a lot there to unpack, but what I think we're seeing is a real milestone in, in how the conflict has shifted. I guess the next question in regards to everything you've just said there is, with that massive paradigm shift happening in this latest round of the conflict, what does that mean for the future? Because Right now, we're seeing a lot of uh, officials here in the U.S., including uh, President Joe Biden, saying uh, there needs to be two states. The Palestinians need to have a state after this is all said and done. But you're saying that paradigm may be something of the past now. And uh, 
attempts to revive it are going to be very difficult. So what does this mean when we say the paradigm has shifted and what does the future look like? It, it, it means that you know, attempts to now revive uh, the two-state paradigm, um, you know, to put it quite bluntly and, and a bit simplistically, I mean, those attempts are uh, too little and way too late, because I think it, given everything I said in answer to your previous question about how the basis of the two-state paradigm has been eroded, you know, what, whatever efforts now are required to sort of, you know, put that paradigm back together will take an enormous amount of political will um, and diplomatic heavy lifting that just may not be there, right? It, it's, it's it, you know, the, 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 the thought that somehow we can go back to the previous formulas uh, of, you know, two states for two peoples, you know, based on the Oslo paradigm or a continuation of that uh, process was launched in Oslo during the 1990s, um, that that may not be there because of these shifts. And, and, and very importantly, you know, I talked about how Israeli society has shifted. I talked about how Palestinian society has shifted. The United States as the main interlocutor uh, in this process. I mean, the, the United States was the key actor that shepherded this, or tried to shepherd this process over the course of the last three decades. I mean, America itself has, has shifted in, in, in interesting ways in how it identifies with this conflict, how it perceives the conflict. And so, so, so a lot has shifted. What comes next? I think, you know, to, in answer to your question, unfortunately, the, the tra trajectory we're seeing is further breakdown uh, in terms of the dynamics of the conflict. So more violence, ever more extreme forms uh, of violence. And, but then you're, you're, you're seeing... Um, so we can expect a continuation of that. I mean, that is sort of the trajectory we're seeing, and, it, and it's violence that now extends beyond uh, just the Palestinian territories in, in the West Bank and Gaza. I think you, you're seeing spillover effects of this conflict regionally, right? So we're seeing sort of these pathways of escalation that, that connect what's going on in Gaza to other conflict arenas, right? We're seeing the, the escalation now in South Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, you know, the potential spillover effects of this in, into Egypt, right? In, in the Sinai, into Jordan, right? With what's happening in, in the West Bank. So I think in, in, in the short term and in the medium term, you will see more of that, unfortunately, just more a trajectory towards extreme violence, more regional escalation. But in parallel with that, you're seeing the emergence of an alternative paradigm uh, to two states, which is the one state, right? So, so now the, the frame that is increasingly being used to describe the reality that exists between 
the Jordan River and the Mediterranean is one state. That, that one state is Israel. Uh, Israel has complete control over the peoples that live within that state, right? both uh, uh, Israelis, Palestinians, Arabs, and Jews. That form of control has uh, increasingly been framed in terms of variations of apartheid. So, so that is the reality that exists. The, the, the alternative paradigm that is emerging is that if, if you cannot solve this conflict, if you cannot reach a settlement based on the two-state idea, then the alternative might be to try and reach a settlement within one state. And that involves a, an idea that is different than partition that reframes the conflict in terms of rights. Right? So a rights-based approach. If, if Palestinians cannot, be, uh, cannot attain their national independence in their own state, then the conflict is shifting in a way that focuses on attaining their rights within a single state, right? So their, their uh, uh, civil uh, human rights within one state that exists between Jordan and the Mediterranean. So that paradigm, I think, is gaining currency. And obviously, we are very far from reaching any form of settlement based on that paradigm. You know, but this is how ideas about the conflict change. This is how ideas about the conflict shift. So these are sort of the two trajectories that, that we're seeing. The, the, the first is, unfortunately, this extreme form of violence. But then in parallel with that, we are seeing the emergence of this alternative um, framework for the settlement of the conflict within one state, a single state. Given your work in diplomacy over the years, you know, I, on this show, we can be very critical of, um, you know, U.S. foreign policy and uh, things of that nature. I, I know that diplomacy can be difficult. It's not an easy job. But is there anyone that, that dropped the ball? Are there any actors, uh, state actors or otherwise, that have dropped the ball when it comes to dealing with Israel-Palestine? Uh, is there anyone that is really deserving of criticism uh, in the past few decades leading up to this? Yeah, you know, I will, I will anchor my response in something that uh, uh, I think former President Obama said. And, and he said that, you know, at the beginning of right after the events of October 7th. You know, he's, he said, I forget his exact words, but something to the effect that we are all complicit in this, right? The, meaning no one is blameless in terms of uh, trying to establish accountability for what went wrong. So I, I, I guess the, the, the very direct answer to your question is that no one is blameless here, right? Certainly, the parties to the conflict themselves are not blameless, right? The Israelis and, and Palestinians, um, you know, the, 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 the Palestinians have a lot to account for. You know, the, the fact that they have not been able to overcome 
their uh, division, internal uh, divide, which has greatly hampered uh, the uh, way they conducted uh, their, the, the, their capacity uh, for negotiations, their, their um, resilience in uh, pushing forward for uh, independence. It's, it's greatly compromised the coherence of the Palestinian national movement. The Israelis certainly, I mean, there's, there's just a lot to be said there about how Israel has systematically, I think, undermined and indeed deliberately dismantled uh, the basis for uh, the emergence of uh, a, a two-state settlement. Uh, and, and there's just much to be said there. I think the, the United States uh, certainly, I mean, the, the way it has conducted um, the diplomacy throughout the years uh, with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, th this has been a, you know, a long-standing Arab critique of America's peace process diplomacy, that there's been much more process than peace, right? The focus on endless rounds of negotiations and 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 processes without really the United States uh, holding uh, both sides to account equally for their transgressions, their mistakes, uh, the the way they have undermined the prospects of of two states, and that certainly applies more to how the United States. Um, just was lacking in any accountability with respect to Israel uh, in its sort of um, approach to undermine two states. And I think, and certainly the Arab side is, is not blameless here uh, as well. Uh, I, I think those, you know, Arab states that have been invested in uh, the cause of Israeli-Palestinian peace certainly uh, could have done more uh, to push for, um, to, to push diplomatically for, uh, I think, a resolution uh, of the conflict. So there's no uh, a lack of blame uh, to go around. And unfortunately, the, this is where we are. And, and it gets back to your initial question about, you know, the Biden administration's sudden uh, awakening to the urgency of a, a two-state solution you know, unfortunately, it is now too little, too late, and it may be just too complex trying to unscramble this omelet. Uh, there's been too much violence, too many settlements, the, the too much in terms of the shift to the right uh, in Israel, uh, too much in terms of the entrenched uh, division within the Palestinian national movement. So it's a tall order. Um, but that's that's where where we are now. Can you talk about the way? Because I, I noticed uh, that you brought this up along with um, a few of your other uh, colleagues at the Cairo Review of Global Affairs in this piece entitled "Scouring for Meaning and Hope in the Rubble of Gaza." Uh, you talk a little bit in that piece about. Uh, the revival of existential narratives. So for Israel, that means the revival of narratives about the Holocaust. And for Palestinians, that means revival of narratives about the Nakba. Can you talk about why those narratives are 
so important and what it means that they're at play because uh, it seemed like a salient line in your piece uh, to talk about those narratives being existential for both parties. Yeah, no, this this is an, an important and I think very unfortunate development. Again, going back to the way this conflict uh, has shifted. Um, and, and those existential narratives, of course, are very, by definition, very polarized, right? So that they are, in fact, becoming a source in itself of, of the conflict. And they play out in, in different ways on, on both sides. So on, on the Israeli side, you know, again, trying to put this in context, you know, you, you have with, with this shift in the uh in, in the, the, the 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 Israeli political spectrum towards the right, you know, that, that has been accompanied by a shift in what we might call Israeli identity politics, right? E emphasizing the Jewish nature of the state, right, uh, as opposed to the secular democratic nation of, of Israel as, uh, as a country uh, since, since its establishment. And you've seen that in the establishment of, or the passing of the nation-state law that, that, that very much uh, reflects this. You've that passed, seen it, I believe, in 2018. 2018, exactly. You, you've seen it in the, in the Israeli demand, the new Israeli demand, that the Palestinians recognize Israel as a Jewish state. And, and with that, I, I think you, you have the, this, um, it's partly tied to this uh, uh, narrative that, that's always been there about you know, the, the eternal victimization of Israel Right, the, the the Jews emerging from the Holocaust uh, to establish Israel as a safe haven for 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 Jews, um, but we we've seen now the, this uh, unfortunate and troubling trend of of framing what are what what are perceived to be Jewish uh, the, uh, th threats emanating from uh, the Palestinian side against Israel in, in existential terms, meaning going back to the Holocaust. So, so uh, 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 October seventh was a Holocaust-like moment, right? and th and that says, I think, a lot about um, Jewish identity rather than sort of any tangible. Uh, military threat, right? That that uh, from the Palestinian side that is able to threaten the survival of Israel as a state. Right? It's it's perceived to be an assault on uh, Jewish identity uh, as you know Israel as a Jewish state, and that somehow the implication of that again staying on the Israeli side for a moment, the implication that you know not only are we threatened by the Palestinians. Uh, in terms of the, the threat they pose to Israel's character as a Jewish state. And that touches on, you know, the demographic threat that there may be more Arabs than Jews in, in this land between the Mediterranean and, and the Jordan River. Um, 
but it 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 it, it also in, entails the belief that any settlement of the conflict, you know, based on two states or or of course the one state paradigm, that in itself poses an existential threat to Israel as a, a Jewish state. And so we, we, we see both the conflict and potentially the settlement of the conflict, you know, framed in these existential terms. On the Palestinian side, the, the threat is, the, or the idea of, of an existential threat is unfortunately much more tangible, much more real. And, and that, that frame of the Nekba, right, the expulsion of uh, Palestinians from their homes, from their land in, in the first Arab-Israeli conflict in 1947-48, right, was obviously anybody who's, who's, you know, who's studied the conflict knows the extent to which that, that is such a traumatic uh, event in, in Palestinian national consciousness. But the reason it's re being revived now is because it's actually very real on the ground. It's very tangible, right? So we've actually seen the revival of expulsionist rhetoric on the Israeli side, you know, with the rise of the far right uh, in Israel, right? The, the, the messianic Jewish right, you know, embodied in uh, figures such as uh, ben Gvir, Smokrich, you know, two uh, of the religious representatives of the religious Zionist parties within the government. You know, it, it's through rhetoric like that that the idea of expelling Palestinians from their land is actually now quite explicit and becoming mainstream in Israeli political discourse, right? We've seen that in the play out in the West Bank increasingly by the just the frequency of settler assaults on Palestinian communities in, in the West Bank with the deliberate aim of expelling them from their land, right? So making them displaced persons, you know, within uh, the, the West Bank. We've seen it very graphically in Gaza. Right? And this is probably one of the most disturbing uh, elements of this war, in addition, of course, to the mass killing that, that we've seen, you know, 20,000 uh, killed, Palestinians killed and counting. We're seeing this idea of expulsion of Palestinians from their land once again in, Israel, in, in, in Gaza, in a very real way, in a tangible way, right? So... The, the, the Israeli military operation that has led to the depopulation of Palestinians from northern Gaza into the south, right? Roughly 1.5 million Palestinians now have been displaced because of that. We've seen calls from certain quarters uh, of the Israeli political establishment to expel Palestinians completely from Gaza into Egypt, right? And these calls, again, they have been explicit. This is a, a not a hidden agenda, right? This is an explicit agenda. Now, irrespective of whether this is actually a, a, um, a, a, 
a formal sort of formula, formal uh, objective, military objective by the Israeli military may not matter much. It, it may be an outcome of the military conflict now uh, on, uh, uh, playing out uh, in Gaza. So on the Palestinian side, it's actually quite real. It, it is actually happening uh, on the ground. And of course, the implication of that, these existential narratives on both sides, is, you know, it's a reflection of a real sense of vulnerability. And unfortunately, it makes any pathway back to diplomacy that much harder, that, that much more challenging. How do you see Arab states being at play in all of this? And I'm, I'm specifically thinking of Egypt because we did have, I mean, there was that Israeli uh, intelligence ministry concept paper saying, well, we can we can push the Gazans into the Sinai. And I, I think Egypt is is not wanting that to happen for a multitude of reasons. So maybe you could talk about, you know, how this will affect the response of um, states like Egypt? Like, how how do they view what is happening? Yeah, so that that concept paper put out by the Israeli intelligence ministry is is very much reflective of of that um, agenda, that expulsionist agenda, um, where it, it lays out, you know, in very um, specific programmatic terms, you know, how this should be done. So it's actually a program for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians uh, from Gaza. And, and by the way, th that when, when we had this depopulation of Palestinians from northern Gaza to the south, right, you had Israeli ministers actually framing this as a second Nekba. Right? So, the, so yes, now Israel has achieved a second Nekba by forcing the displacement of Palestinians uh, from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, and then eventually into uh, into Egypt, into the Sinai, as you mentioned. Now, with, with respect to Egypt, Egypt pushed back very hard uh, on this. Right? The, the Egyptian president, uh, President Sisi, actually declared that this would be a red line for Egypt. And, and he articulated the reasons, I think, for this very clearly. I mean, so, so the rationale was based on two considerations. The first consideration has to do with Egypt's moral responsibility towards the Israeli-Palestinian issue in, in, in general and the Palestinian cause. Uh, specifically, I mean, th this is uh, an issue that Egypt has historically, politically, diplomatically felt a great deal of attachment uh, to this issue. And the, 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 Egypt has said, we will not be a party, to, we will not be complicit in a second Nakba, you know, allowing Palestinians to be expelled from their home again. We, we will not be party to that. You know, th this is not. Uh, th this was not a case of you know rejecting uh, Palestinians as uh, as refugees. I mean, Egypt has taken Palestinian uh, uh, wounded uh, for treatment uh, in Egypt. Egypt is, has actually taken 
about 9 million refugees from uh, different conflict zones across the region. So we have refugees from Sudan, from Libya, from Syria, from Iraq, from Yemen. But for the Palestinians, it's different because, because of everything we know about the history of the conflict, right? They are de deliberately expelled with the intention that they will never come back. So we we the, the 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 one of the core considerations that Egypt articulated was we we will not be a party to that. There's a there's a second uh, no less important consideration that e e Egypt articulated, and that has a lot to do with security. Right? So allowing Palestinians to uh, to 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 be displaced from Gaza into the Sinai means that you allow Hamas and the idea of resistance to move from Gaza into the Sinai. And the implication of that is that you can have the Sinai, northern Sinai, being transformed into a focus of resistance operations against Israel. And that has serious implications. It has serious implications for Egyptian security. It has serious implications for Egypt's peace treaty with Israel. Right? Because now if you transform the Sinai into a conflict zone, you know, it becomes a zone that is now part of the broader conflict, that can potentially endanger the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, which has really been the first key breakthrough in Arab-Israeli peace. Right? So the implications of this are very serious. Right? And then you, you have another implication of this is that you set a very serious precedent. You know, if you allow this displacement to happen in Gaza, it becomes so much easier in the West Bank. And right? the West Bank expelling Palestinians in the West Bank to Jordan. Right? And that relates to the, the old you know, Zionist idea of Jordan the idea that Jordan should be the Palestinian state, right? If if you, if you if the Palestinians want a state, they should just move into Jordan, and that can be uh, the basis for realizing their nationalist uh, aspirations. So the implications of this are very serious. They're serious from a moral point of view. You know, you actually have calls for ethnic cleansing now as an explicit part of Israeli political discourse. The security implications are no less serious. I'm glad you brought that up in regards to Egypt, because I, I've heard a lot of people say to me, um, or you, you hear this line, uh, especially from some politicians in the U.S. of, oh, why doesn't Egypt, Egypt accept more refugees? Or, you know, why can't Egypt just take the Gazans in? And I've long held the view, and I didn't know that this was the, the view in Egypt, but I, I suspected it was, that, you know, Egypt, and I would suspect a lot of other Arab states, do not want to be party to a second Nakba. They don't want to be uh, seen as complicit in it. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, either gloss over that or they don't realize what the Nakba means and uh, its significance uh, to the Arab world. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And and it unfortunately it it speaks to 
um, the extent in which you know, th this idea has played out in Western discourse, you know, that, that it, it's a humanitarian issue, which of course it is. I mean, there, there's no, you know, there's no denying that, right? But I think in, in, in looking at this issue in purely humanitarian terms, you know, glosses over uh, the extent to which this is at the core of it, it is a project for another wave of ethnic cleansing in Palestine. It is uh, being driven by a very explicit and, you know, let's face it, radical agenda that is, is emerging within the Israeli body politic, right? Again, going back to the idea of, you know, the, the, the conflict generating ever more extreme forms of violence, right? So the conflict is being radicalized. This is a very radical solution being propagated by the uh, Israeli Jewish right, which is now firmly established in, in, in the Israeli government. Um, it, it is a deliberate, uh, premeditated, calculated agenda. You know, the, these... These ministers that I mentioned, you know, the, uh, uh, Smotrich, who is the Israeli finance minister, you know, wrote explicitly uh, about this, right? And so this is not a hidden agenda. But I think in, in Western political discourse, unfortunately, you know, just looking at this in, in purely humanitarian terms, glosses over that. Right? Egypt is dealing with this, in, with the humanitarian aspect of this, you know, taking in more and more Palestinians into Egypt for, for medical treatment, insisting, I mean, part of Egypt's diplomacy since day one of the conflict, I mean, Egypt has been absolutely adamant and pushing for maximizing the humanitarian relief uh, that gets into Gaza, right? As, and, and really, uh, uh, putting pressure on the United States to impress upon Israel the absolute need to dramatically increase the humanitarian assistance that gets into Gaza. So, but it's not just a humanitarian issue. I mean, we, we have to recognize this is unfortunately driven by what, what is um, clearly a radical agenda emerging uh, in Israel. Just a few more questions here. You know, in the past, we've had Israel deal with Gaza through this strategy that, I mean, the wording for it has always kind of disturbed me, uh, mowing the grass. Uh, so, you know, you know, you just go in there and you bomb for a bit and then, you know, you move on. Now we're in this situation where it's, you know, I think this current round is beyond just mowing the grass. I mean, we're seeing calls for the destruction of Hamas, and yet I don't think Israel has really explained what that means. And given that you have even figures that are considered moderate by a lot of Western audiences, such as Isaac Herzog, saying there are no innocent Gazans, you know, it's they're all uh, guilty for what happened on October 7th. I, I feel like the distinction between Hamas and inhabitants of Gaza is almost being uh, sort of obliterated within the discourse. Uh, 
And I feel as if Israel's approach, it doesn't seem like there's actually a clear strategic goal in this war. I, I, I can't really figure out what the goal is, and I don't know what the destruction of Hamas means. That's a very vague goal. So, I mean, do you do you think Israel has either obscured its actual goal or it, it just doesn't have one? Um, it just sees, you know, military might as the way forward when really the, the truth is the only thing that is going to end this is a political solution. Yeah, th th this is... So you're not the only one who's been perplexed about this. I mean, you know, if, if you read uh, very serious commentaries um, from uh, the U.S. Um, and even in Israel by sort of military analysts, they, they are equally perplexed of trying to you know, define the coherence uh, any sort of coherence or logic to the the Israeli military approach to this conflict. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, so mowing the grass is is this euphemism that has emerged to uh, frame uh, uh, or describe Israeli strategy towards you know groups like uh, non-state actors like Hezbollah, but in in particular with relation to Hamas. And, and this is the strategy that has been used throughout the, all of the previous rounds of conflict uh, between both sides, you know, going back to 2008, 2012, 2014, up until 2021, and, and so on. And the idea here, the, 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 the logic uh, behind this approach is a purely military operational logic, right? And it discounts completely the idea that you know, military force can be used to actually uh, establish the conditions for any sort of political settlement uh, with respect to Hamas. Right? You, you, you cannot negotiate with Hamas. You cannot strike a deal uh, with Hamas. You cannot reach a political settlement with Hamas. So all you could do is repeatedly, you know, go in and mow the grass, right? You know, cut them down to size, uh, degrade their military infrastructure, kill Hamas fighters, undermine their command and control, so on and so forth. This is exactly why that if you look at the previous rounds of conflict, right, between both sides, they have all ended up with the same outcome, which is the status quo. So at the end of each round, we have the situation unchanged. Hamas is still firmly entrenched in Gaza. The standoff between Hamas and Israel continues, right? And, and we, we get back to the same situation time and time again. Now, the Israelis have told us that this time is different. Right? There can be no going back to the status quo. Mowing the grass has failed. Hamas cannot be deterred. And so now the solution, the Israeli solution, is to destroy Hamas. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, that uh, objective has also been framed in military operational terms, right? So because that's you know, bringing about the destruction of Hamas means 
you know, killing almost every single Hamas commander and fighter, completely destroying the military infrastructure. Um, it's also been translated into this idea of uprooting Hamas as, as a as a government governance framework from Gaza, right? And so there will be no Hamas, no, no political presence uh, uh, for Hamas in Gaza. And it, it, it seems to be, or it's emerging that much of that um, maximalist objective has been framed a, as a consequence of Israel's current political situation, right? So the political leadership, Prime Minister Netanyahu, framed the conflict in these maximalist terms, perhaps for his own political agenda, right, to ensure his survival. So, so the longer the war continues towards this maximalist agenda, right, the more he stays in power, the more he evades accountability. But if you if you look at what serious what what is emerging in terms of leaks attributed to you know the the serious military strategists within Israel, they they understand that objective is not attainable, right? Completely destroying Hamas, especially as an ideology, especially as you know a movement embodying the idea of resistance. You know that that is simply not attainable. Which is exactly why, if, if you look at the way Israel is thinking about the how it approaches Gaza after the war, right? The Israel is saying that we have to stay in Gaza because we, we will need to continue fighting Hamas, remnants of Hamas. We have to uh, maintain our military presence within the Gaza Strip. We need to establish a security perimeter along the entirety of uh, the border with Gaza, inside Gaza. Right? We need to have the ability to go in and out of Gaza periodically to continue you know, implicitly mowing the grass again. So you, you, you see the implicit acknowledgement that this is not an attainable objective. And so that, that's a very unfortunate consequence. Yes, it, it is incoherent. But th there's one very troubling implication of, of all of this right? that, that derives from, from your question, in that, it be, unfortunately, much of the Western diplomatic approach to this conflict has bought into this idea that you can destroy Hamas. And that not only can you can you do it, but you must do it, which is why the United States and, and initially, at least, most of the Western capitals have gone to such lengths to give Israel more time to achieve this objective. But also, if, if you look at the all of the uh, discourse about the post-war, right? That framing the, the whole discussion about what happens in Gaza as the day after, right? Presumably, that means the day after Israel is able to destroy Hamas. But unfortunately, because that objective is now proving to be unattainable, there may never be a day after. So we may never get to the day 
when we can think of an alternative framework, governance framework for Gaza, uh, we may never get to a day when we actually can talk seriously about reconstruction in Gaza. We can never get to the day after where we can talk about resettlement of displaced Palestinians within Gaza. Right. So it just unfortunately sets up a situation in which that day never comes. Right. Because we're we're seeking to achieve an objective which is unattainable. So the, the extent to which the United States has been wedded to this concept has delayed, unfortunately, the diplomacy. There's very little diplomacy to talk about. Has unfortunately exacted a huge price, an exorbitant price in Palestinian lives and just the sheer destruction uh, that has been visited on Gaza. And it may present us a, a situation in which we are stuck with this new, very harsh reality for, for a long time. I'm curious, did you happen to see the um, Israeli ambassador to the UK? She was on TV recently um, saying, you know, there's not going to be a two-state. Uh, do you think statements like that are significant? They're significant only in, in the extent that they are explicit and blunt in reflecting what has been the, the, the mainstream view within Israel for decades, right? I mean, the, the only difference is, is you know, the fact that she said this explicitly, bluntly in English, you know, to, to uh, directed to a Western audience. Uh, that is really the significance of it. But is, is she reflecting anything new i mean is this a new departure for you know the israeli political objectives no i mean the, the, this is where the israeli mainstream has been for uh quite some time now uh just not um uh, not only not considering the idea of a palestinian state but like i said doing everything possible to undermine the prospects of the emergence of a Palestinian state. I mean, that is actually a big part of how we got here, right? The, the division between the West Bank and Gaza, between Fatah and Hamas, right? I mean, much of that has been, like I said, of the Palestinians' own making, right? Just the, the, the divisions within the Palestinian national movement. But once those divisions emerged, they were actively deepened and encouraged by Israel itself. I mean, Netanyahu himself worked actively. I mean, this is, you know, an, um, something that will be the subject of much accountability moving forward. Netanyahu actively worked to make sure that that division is entrenched, to work with Hamas as an alternative to the Palestinian Authority in, in the West Bank, right? Because the, the, the Palestinian Authority was, was seen, rightly so, as embodying you know, the nucleus of a Palestinian state, a future Palestinian state. So rather than engage with the PA in the West Bank, Netanyahu did everything possible to undermine the Palestinian Authority and, and work with Hamas, 
right, entrenching Hamas uh, in Gaza, undermining the prospects for Palestinian reconciliation. I mean, this was an agenda that Egypt worked on for decades, trying to overcome that divide between Fatah and Hamas, uh, which was extremely difficult in itself because the division was quite deep. But an added source of difficulty was the extent to which the Israeli government and, and Netanyahu specifically worked to undermine uh, that reconciliation. And, and this is a big part of how we got to October 7th, right? Because for, for Hamas, you know, the, the, the logic that seems to have driven Hamas in launching October 7th was it, it needed to break out of this very constricted reality it found itself in. Not being able to break out of Gaza politically or diplomatically, it decided to break out militarily. And so, yes, I mean, it, it is a, a very unfortunate reality of, of where we are, but it, it, it speaks to the bigger uh the, the bigger trajectory here, right? Because you, your question about uh, the the Israeli uh, ambassador to London, her comments, you know, about just the complete rejection of a Palestinian state. Well, th this is, we are seeing the alternative to that. We are seeing now the way this conflict has been transformed. This is simply a reflection of the fact that we have not been able to solve this conflict on the basis uh, of two states. I just had two more questions and I'll let you go because I know I've kept you a bit longer, but um, you know, we've talked quite a bit about Netanyahu and I think there's an emerging narrative here in the US that, you know, the problem is Netanyahu, the problem is the Likud party. Uh, and once the Likud party is, you know, gone or out of power or Netanyahu is gone and out of power, you know, we'll have a Benny Gantz or a Yer Lapid and things will just sort of magically get better. And I, I think this ignores the fact that, I mean, the settlement expansion has gone on under parties that weren't Likud. Do you think it's foolhardy, I guess? for people to assume that these problems will be fixed if, you know, the, the Likud's power is diminished in Israel. And I mean, I, to be fair, I think it would be good if, if a Netanyahu was gone, if, if the Likud party's power was diminished, but I'm not sure it's the, the key to fixing everything. Yeah. You know, it, it, it I wish I, I could be in a position to say, you know, to, to, to agree with that assumption that, yes, you know, if, if uh, Likud is somehow out of power, that there is an alternative there within the Israeli political spectrum that will engage seriously with the idea of, you know, getting back to us you know, a, a, a diplomatic pathway to a two-state settlement. I, I wish that were the case, but unfortunately, it, it's, it's not there. 
the the alternatives what we have in in Israel now is not the traditional political divide between you know the the right and and the center left what we have is different shades of right right so yes we may get get a different shade of right within with with um uh figures such as uh Benny Gantz or Yair Lapid. But if you look at what they themselves are, are saying, I mean, they are uh, openly coming out and, and, and even before October 7th, uh, but especially since October 7th, you know, saying that, th that there is no prospect for uh, getting, get, getting to a Palestinian state. And they, they articulate, you know, their, their different rationales for that. But they all point to the same outcome that that no, the, this is not uh, something that uh, that uh, will be seriously entertained by these different political alternatives. So no, I mean the the idea that you know if if Netanyahu goes, there will emerge someone that the Biden administration and, and, and Palestinians and Arabs in general can consider a, a partner for moving to a two-state solution, uh, that doesn't seem to be there. Now, that said, you know, thoughtful Israeli commentators point to the very interesting parallels between October 7th, 2023, and October 6th, 1973, right? So, as a result of the October War in 1973, you know, you, you had the, the war set in motion, a very interesting, again, um, uh, political shift that, that sort of went through its own cycle that produced uh, the, the, the change in government from labor to Likud, right? So Golda Meir and Yitzhak Rabin were out, uh, and and we had uh, uh, Begin and the Likud party coming into power. So a shift to the right, but a shift that you know the, the, that paved the way for peace with Egypt um, under a, a Likud government. And so you know, thoughtful Israeli commentators make the claim that something, some variation of this can happen again, right? Given just the extent of the sheer shock uh, that was produced by October 7th, 2023. I really have no view on, um, on that idea, on, on you know, that prospect. Um, it's a hopeful prospect, but one that seems very distant uh, from where we are today. The very last thing I wanted to ask you you know, I know we said that there's a little bit of blood on everyone's hands when it comes to th this broader conflict. However, I think the narrative we get in the U.S. can best be summed up by, well, I I'll put it this way. I, I was watching, um, I think it was ABC News or The View or one of those shows uh, here in the U.S. recently, and Hillary Clinton was on, and she was asked about Obama's comments where he said, you know, there there's a lot of guilty parties in all of this. And she said, I think what he meant, and then she went into a long diatribe about um, Arafat 
and, and basically saying it's all Arafat's fault. He didn't take the deal when, when my husband was in power, you know, it, it's Arafat uh, dropped the ball. And I feel like that's a particular narrative that I hear a lot in um, the U S here, which is, well, you, you know, these Palestinian leaders just didn't take a good deal when it was given to them. It's all their fault. They let their people down. And I feel like that narrative places way too much on Palestinians. And it leaves out the fact that, you know, Israel hasn't always uh, been generous with its offers. Would you be able to talk about maybe the Palestinian and Arab perspective on uh, diplomatic efforts and where maybe they see Israel falling short? Because I think in the U.S. we hear where, oh, Palestinians fell short, but we never hear the other side of that. We never hear the the response that maybe Arab voices have to those accusations. Yeah, so, I mean, th this was a very important episode in uh, Arab-Israeli peacemaking, right? The What um, Hillary Clinton is referring to is the Camp David summit uh, convened by her husband, then President uh, Bill Clinton, uh, at Camp David in, in 2000, um, bringing uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and, and uh, the late Yasser Arafat to Camp David to, to try and reach a final settlement uh, agreement to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, so this was one of the rare moments where there was an attempt to uh, actually reach a final status settlement uh, to the conflict right? that, that would deal that would deal with all of the core issues to the conflict, right? The the borders of a Palestinian state, the disposition of uh, Israeli settlements in the West Bank, security arrangements in in that territory. Uh, the status of Jerusalem and the holy places, the, the very sensitive issue of the right of return of, of Palestinian refugees uh, and, and how that would play out. Uh, so there's no doubt it was a serious attempt. The, the narrative that uh, this failed because of Palestinian refusal of what was a very generous offer uh, made by the Israeli side is unfortunately, yes, as you implied, simplistic and, and just simply not true. If, if you go back to the negotiating record of Camp David and the lead up to Camp David, you know, m m many parties involved, uh, including the Palestinians, including uh, Egypt, which was very closely involved in, in the lead up to this you know, we're, we're saying that, that look, what, what's happening is that the Israelis are essentially negotiating with themselves about what they think would be the best deal that the Palestinians should accept. And once the Israelis make a determination amongst themselves as to you know, what the parameters of that deal should be, then... They presented to the United States, you know, the, 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 the Clinton administration, and it would be incumbent upon the U.S. side to uh, present this to uh, the, the Palestinians as a take it or leave it uh, agreement. This has been the, the 
Palestinian view, uh, backed up by by the general Arab view. But it's also actually been the view of certain American negotiators, U.S. negotiators that that were heavily involved uh, with the uh, peace team at the time. I mean, they said variations of of what I'm saying, uh, essentially. So rather than you know chalk this up as you know a failed attempt that could have been built on, you know, subsequently to try and reach a, a, a viable agreement. Um, it's been painted, unfortunately, as you know, the with, with this narrative that you know the, the the Palestinians rejected this overly generous offer. Um, and hence, you know, the, the Palestinians uh, never pass an opportunity to pass an opportunity, which is the traditional Israeli refrain uh, against Palestinians. But unfortunately, that is, so it's 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 a narrative that plays out negatively um, against you know the the the, the prospect of. Uh, getting back to a pathway to to two states, but unfortunately, it's it's you know if if we look at this logically, it's not actually very relevant because it it doesn't change the very disturbing trajectory that we have been on since that moment, right? Since the moment when the peace process essentially collapsed, right, and and with various attempts to revive it after that, but uh, unsuccessfully. The trajectory we've been on is what brought us to this point uh, that, that we are discussing today. I, mean, I actually remember listening to then Secretary Clinton uh, when she was in the Obama administration, you know, talking about uh, the, this, this very issue, the, 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 the idea that the conflict is on a very dangerous trajectory. It, it's, it's on a very dangerous trajectory militarily. It's on a dangerous trajectory demographically and certainly politically. Right? So she herself was making the case, you know, after, you know, this whole Camp David episode that, that, that she sort of uh, spoke about very negatively, as you pointed out, you know, later when she was in the Obama administration, she was pointing this out, uh, that look, we're on a very dangerous pathway here and we have to get back to some form of negotiated solution. Otherwise, you know, the implications of this will, will all be very negative. And I, I, I think that's an important case study of, you know, how these narratives are unfortunately propagated simplistically, uh, for political purposes, um, and, and that really uh, just divert our attention from the urgency of the moment and and just the, the, the very complex history of the conflict that brought us uh, to this moment. I want to thank you, Kareem, for coming on Parallax Views. I want to give you the floor to make any... Um... Final comments. Uh, what do you hope, I guess, listeners get out of this conversation? What What's the most important aspect you think people should take out of this? Yeah, I, I'm hoping 
people would 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 take out of this that in the the um the attempt you know we're we're, we're all i think you know, most of your viewers um i think you know that you that these are very serious conversations that that you've had on parallax i've listened to some of them i think they're serious they're in depth so i'm, I'm presuming most of your viewers are you know serious people who are in one way or another, attached or invested uh, in this conflict. And, and it's very easy for, you know, for, for people who are emotionally or personally attached to retreat into their uh, tribal narratives. Right? And th this has been a very polarizing conflict. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen this play out, I think, in very interesting ways in the, the you know, the, the debate and the activism around this conflict, certainly in the West, um, you know, the whole polarization and, and the debate on U.S. college campuses, I think is very interesting to watch. The way this conflict has now become a very anchored in, in a very big way, in, in the global justice movement, you know, as 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 the the Palestinian cause, and just the 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 real the rejection of what I've described as this extreme violence. I mean, just the death, the 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 horrific death toll, the the sheer extent of the destruction, you know, the revival of these existential narratives. You know, the, we're talking about genocide, we're talking about ethnic cleansing. I mean, these are very you know, very extremely disturbing developments. So it's very easy for people to to retreat into their sort of comfort zone, their corner, uh, their 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 own tribal narrative. But I think that that you know doing that, I think we have to escape that um, that the, that tension of of retreating into our own corner because we have to see. The extent to which, you know, that this will claim a very heavy toll on both sides, and and I think difficult that is, as it is, that there needs to be not only an empathy with the suffering of the other side, but but there really needs to be a, a, a drive to to get to to overcome the very serious implications of the moment to try and get back to a pathway towards a solution. I, I don't want to cut in, but I, I just wanted to add to that very briefly. I recently had the um, Palestinian historian Rashid Halidi on, and he said something that very much stuck with me, and I, I want to bounce this out off you. He said, you know, Israel's strategy in a lot of ways, especially under Netanyahu, has been one of um, – thinking that you can maintain security through creating permanent insecurity for another population, in this case, the Palestinians. And Halidi said to me, you know, it actually, it hurts the Palestinians, but it also doesn't create security for Israeli Jews. Uh, and to me, that's the biggest tragedy of all of this is that, you know, I don't think Israeli Jews or Palestinians are better off with this trajectory at all. I, I think it, it hurts both of them in the long run. The biggest threat 
to Israeli security um, and the cohesion of uh, or the, the viability of Israel as uh, a state is the occupation. I, I think it, it, it needs to be phrased in, in these very blunt, very direct terms. Many in Israel have, have recognized this. Many in Israel have understood the extent to which the, the occupation, maintaining the occupation, is having a corrosive effect on Israel's society, on Israel's global standing, on Israel's, you know, sense of of itself as you know a a state and a society that that embodies progressive liberal Jewish values. I think it's, it's very interesting how certain Jewish communities in in the West have really taken up the cause of of expressing that look. You know, we you the 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 state of Israel cannot do what it's doing in our name, right? In the defense of Jews, it stands against everything we have been uh, have been uh, educated with and and socialized in everything we've been led to believe about Jewish values. So yes, it it, it is it it is certainly the 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 biggest threat to uh, Israeli security is. The occupation. That said, that recognition now is is bumping against the very harsh realities that the existential narratives that are emerging within Israel, the sense of vulnerability now in Israel, the very harsh realities Israel has created uh, in the occupied territories and in, in the West Bank and certainly now in Gaza. So one can only hope that you know that recognition will lead to a um, force correction, force correction that, that we could hope will emerge uh, in Israel towards a different path, towards a different trajectory for this conflict. Well, hey, Karim Hagag, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, my listeners can keep up with uh, your work at the Cairo Review, right? Correct, yes. We, we are doing extensive coverage of this conflict. So happy to have uh, your listeners uh, stay tuned. All of our content uh, is free. So yes, we, we this is a plat. The Cairo Review is a platform that really tries to provide a forum for views from the region, essentially, uh, on issues of global affairs. And we've been dedicating much of our coverage to Arab-Israeli issues. And we have a special issue of the journal coming out on the conflict uh, in Gaza uh, very soon. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ambassador Karim Hagag. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I must emphasize that it is you, dear listeners, to keep this show going. Other than one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, it is you, the listener, that keeps this show afloat with your financial contributions on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. 
One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.